welcome to another episode of the Food for Thought podcast. I'm your host, Erin Hallstrom. With me on the podcast today is Stephen Burton, founder and CEO of Icicle Technologies. Originally launched to help solve the problems of foodborne illness, Icicle now helps food companies execute their food safety plans. In this episode, we get to the meat of the matter of lab-grown meat. We kick things off talking about why the notion of lab-grown meat and alternative proteins are growing in popularity, as well as their impact on the meat industry as a whole. We talk a bit about consumers' perspectives of meat alternatives and the GMO-evocation of it all, before digging into a discussion about both the advantages and drawbacks of lab-grown meat. We, of course, also talk about how safe lab-grown meat really is. We wrap things up talking about how Icicle Technologies is helping companies, including those in the lab-grown meat space, bring safer products to market. But before we get into the episode, a word from our friends at the 2022 Digital Food and Beverage Conference. The rise in e-commerce demand and changing consumer behavior have forced food and beverage brands, retailers, grocers, and quick-serve restaurants to adjust their processes to better relate and build lasting relationships with their new digital customers. Be sure to register for the 2022 Digital Food and Beverage event taking place July 25th through the 26th in Austin, Texas. Meet with fellow digital marketing and e-commerce professionals from the industry's most innovative companies. Use promo code DFB22FOOD at foodandbeverage.wbresearch.com for 25% off your pass. Steve, welcome to the Food for Thought podcast. I'm so excited to have you on, and I would love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and let us know your background and what it is you do. Sure, happy to do that, and uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm essentially a technologist uh, with a background in manufacturing and software development. And over the last uh, decade, I've been the CEO of Icicle Technologies. And we've been developing an automation system uh, called Icicle for food manufacturers. And kind of in that role, I always uh, try to stay on top of uh, food technology trends. And also, because we have quite a broad market in terms of industry verticals, I have a bit of an advantage because I can see into different types of uh, companies, uh, including alternative protein products. Can you talk to me a bit more about what Icicle does specifically for food processors? Sure. Maybe just a bit of background would be sort of helpful on that. Uh, First of all, I I myself got uh, seriously ill with food poisoning uh, on several different occasions, and I also have two immunocompromised children. So originally when I started Icicle, I did it with the intention of uh, sort of solving the problem of foodborne illness because I assumed that there needed to be some sort of technological solution for it because like one in ten people get foodborne illness contracted diseases each year, so there there just sort of had to be a better way. So originally we started out as a pure food safety application, and our mission was to help 
companies identify and control the biological, chemical, physical hazards that they might encounter when producing food products. And, and specifically in terms of defining uh, food safety plans, uh, executing those plans, monitoring the activities related to those plans to make sure that uh, the food products are safe. And then if things do go off the rails, to provide tools to be able to sort of manage emergencies when they arise. And um, we launched the application, and then afterwards it was quite well accepted, but people started asking us for more. Uh, so we started out, uh, you know, we did food safety, so they wanted to know about what about quality control, and then what about traceability, and then that sort of led into warehouse management, and we're at the point today where we've, we have a complete system that's paperless and really allows food processors to manage all aspects of their business. Let's dig in a bit on alternative proteins and lab-grown meat. From where you're sitting, what's the consumer appeal to lab-grown meat? Okay. Uh, first of all, I think there's, there's really a very big difference between alternative proteins and lab-grown meat. So essentially, uh, alternative proteins are usually plant-based meat substitutes, and we have a number of, of our clients uh, produce those products, some very interesting ones like uh, Big Mountain Foods and Tomorrow Foods. But lab-grown meat it actually is really meat. So this isn't a, a meat, like a protein alternative. This is actually meat uh, uh, tissue itself. And the difference really is that it's grown in a bioreactor instead of in a cow or a pig or a sheep, right? And uh, in terms of lab-grown meat, I think the consumer uh, kind of appeal is really twofold. Firstly, uh, many, many people are concerned about the morality of killing animals. Uh, so they're, you know, they're worried about how the animals uh, feel, the pain they suffer when they're slaughtered. And uh, so to kind of relieve the suffering of the animals, uh, people feel that it may be um, you know, more ethical to consume products that are grown in a lab as opposed to uh, having to have uh, animals raised and slaughtered to, to provide those food products. And, uh, but it's a little bit kind of hard for us as humans because we have millions of years of evolution that have uh, kind of conspired to cause us to crave this kind of umami flavor that we get from meat especially when it's you know, char-broiled on the, on the barbecue. So most people sort of set aside that that moral concern uh, when dinner time arrives and, uh, you know, partake in meat products. Although, of course, not everybody. But in, uh, in the broader sense of universal morality, I'm not really sure that Kelly Platts is really that much better as an as a, uh, absolute morality, but uh, because we're animals, we're, uh, we, we feel that that's the case. So that's a concern for people. And that the second reason is really around the environmental impact of the meat industry as a whole. So growing animals takes an enormous amount of space. It's quite inefficient in terms of uh, the calories that are produced per pound of product compared to plant products. And it, oftentimes the animals are raised on land that could be repurposed to grow plants for food and uh, with a much higher yield in, in terms of calories per acre. Um, and then, they, you know, when you're raising animals, there's a lot of effluent that's produced uh, by the animals that washes off the, uh, the pasture lens and creates a, a biohazard that's really a pretty high order uh, problem for, especially if the, if the animals are raised in proximity to, uh, to farming operations where they're growing plants. And we've seen many cases of recalls that are 
caused by uh, adjacent animal uh, husbandry uh, to, to plant uh, agriculture. I want to piggyback off of what you were talking about with the appeal to lab-grown meat. Um, why do you think that lab-grown meat has picked up in popularity so much in recent years? Actually, I, I think so far the popularity is pretty much limited to uh, attracting investors uh, into the lab-grown meat uh, market because it's not really available uh, at the moment at all. Uh, so there's a couple places in the world where they're doing a little bit of test marketing, you know, most notably at, uh, in Singapore and Israel. And there's quite a few companies coming out with uh, you know, major initiatives, uh, very well funded uh, by, by investors like uh, Good Meats and Impossible Foods out of the U.S. and Moza Meats in Europe. Future Meat is a very interesting company out of Israel that's, uh, that's got a, a really interesting technology. But I think all of these are just now starting to ramp up, and uh, it's going to take some time before you know, we actually have the opportunity to put lab-grown meat on our, our, uh, our tables. Um, we have seen, though, in terms of the popularity uptake for the alternative meat, plant-based products. And people really like them because they have the notion, you know, again, that, that, the, uh, that there's uh, no animal cruelty involved with, uh, with producing these alternatives and that um, perhaps they're healthier as well. So I think that the, uh, the plant-based proteins have a perception in the consumer uh, market in general that it's a healthier product, but I'm not sure that that's entirely true because there's other additives that have to be added that uh, make up for the flavor that the, the plant-based products might not necessarily uh, come out of the box with. Um, so, but I do think that when the lab-grown meat becomes uh, more readily available, the same sort of things that attract people towards the, um, the plant-based uh, meat substitutes are also going to be uh, carried over to the lab-grown meat as well. What are some of the drawbacks of lab-grown meat? Well, the biggest one so far is really cost. This is, uh, this is the main, main uh, uh, hurdle I think that they have to uh, overcome, these, uh, all these companies that are developing these meat products. Um, when the first burger, for example, was produced back in 2013, it was about $300,000 per burger uh, in terms of the cost of growing that meat. So, you know, obviously very, very far from something that a consumer can, can afford. But by this year, it dropped to 40 bucks per kilogram. Uh, and, and I think we're going to see something, or at least the, the, um, the press that we're reading from the CEOs of these companies are suggesting that you know, something in the $20 per kilogram range uh, could be occurring over the next year to two years. And I think at that point, it's going to become competitive with naturally grown meat. And it's going to be able to compete, I think, quite effectively, particularly against uh, specialty uh, meat products like organic, grass-fed, free-range, you know, that are typically uh, commanding a, a premium at the uh, grocery store. We're also seeing quite a dramatic increase right now in terms of inflation and food products in general. And uh, the, there's quite a few advantages from lab-grown meat. Personally, I moved really out of the, the skeptics camp in terms of whether or not the technology will ever become viable because at the, at the beginning, when you think about building an enormous bioreactor to produce meat at an industrial scale, I mean, the, the capital cost of doing that and the technological uncertainties are definitely very, uh, very significant. But um, 
now there's enough uh, evidence, I think, uh, out on the table, you know, the test products, the, um, the, the variety of companies that are involved, that we can, we can really clearly see that in the near future it is going to be viable. And, uh, and at this point, it's just a matter of time before it uh, attains some sort of uh, mass market uh, adoption. Um, there are, the other main problem that they experience is that there's legacy expectations. And when we think of meat in general, we think of kind of like steaks, you know, broiling on the grill. And uh, we're very used to uh, consuming our meat in a particular way, and we're sensitive to the texture of the meat. And reproducing those textures in a lab is really, really hard. Every company is working on that, and many are doing so with uh, considerable success right now. But I think it would behoove us as consumers really to sort of change our expectations and sort of forget the notion of the original you know, types of meats that we're used to eating and sort of enjoy and explore the alternative forms that the lab-grown meat can take. And I think that uh, embracing the direction that that technology is leading us is going to end up at a much better place than if we expend all our efforts just trying to reproduce the, uh, the natural work of, you know, the Almighty uh, himself. So a two-part question for you right now. Food safety, especially with meat products, is a huge issue, not only for consumers, but processors alike. How does lab-grown meat play into that? And how does what you're doing at Icicle play into that as well? So this is a really interesting question for me. It plays very closely to my heart. I mean, when I founded Icicle in the first place, the whole idea was to uh, reduce the incidence of uh, foodborne illness. When, uh, when animals or birds are slaughtered, their digestive tract is essentially a big bag of bacteria that contaminates really everything that it touches. Um, animals contract diseases and their bloods contain the pathogens like viruses. And the central nervous tissue of animals, especially cows, can contain even worse things like prions, which aren't even living organisms. They're just misfolded proteins that can cause mad cow disease in, in animals and um, Crutchfield-Jacobs disease in humans, which is a de degenerative uh, neural disease. And uh, lab-grown meat has uh, several advantages, really, in this regard. First of all, there's no blood, there's no guts, uh, there's no excessive water all over the show like you'd find in a typical slaughterhouse. There's no bacteria-laden digestive juices that are sloshing all over all the workers that, and all the pro product that's being uh, processed. Um, pathogenic bacteria like uh, Salmonella and E. coli you know, don't get to ride in on the rodents and the birds the way that they do uh, with uh, naturally grown uh, animal meats that you know, eventually find our way into kitchens. In fact, with chicken, uh, salmonella is actually one of the harmful pathogenic bacteria that, that isn't even mandated to be controlled at the facility level. You know, we're required to uh, cook, it, uh, cook the chicken to a, a, a temperature in our own kitchens that kills the, kills the pathogens because there's really no way to, to control the, uh, the pathogens in a, in a food processing environment. So having a, having a lab-grown meat has the advantage of being raised in a clean, you know, controlled laboratory environment that's essentially sterile. 
and uh, much more suitable really for the production of safe food than natural products are. And there's, there's no slaughterhouse on the planet, you know, even with the best uh, standard operating procedures and monitoring systems in place that could ever compete with the lab in terms of food safety. But that doesn't mean we don't need to be careful because uh, bacteria and viruses tend to find themselves and find their way into all sorts of different places. And uh, many of these uh, will also find their way into labs if uh, the labs aren't vigilant. Uh, listeria is like one of the main uh, concerns I would have because it, it has an insidious way of working its way into you know, kind of dark, cold places inside uh, pieces of equipment that uh, can spring forth from to cause problems. So it's not uh, sort of a, a free uh, ride for these lab-grown beef people, but or lab-grown meat in general, but I think uh, it's much, much better than uh, having a, a slaughterhouse-type environment in terms of the food safety, for sure. Uh, in terms of how Icicle can help with that, uh, Icicle is an extremely flexible kind of system, so it can be configured for any different type of uh, food production environment, including lab-grown meat. So specific for lab-grown meat, we can uh, absolutely help uh, the people developing these lab-grown meats uh, identify the biological, chemical, physical hazards. There's even requirements for bioterrorism and food fraud, which I think would be less of a risk there, but still uh, non-zero in terms of the overall risk level. So we can, we can help uh, identify and put in controls to, to deal with those hazards, identify them, and, uh, and document uh, procedures and plans to enable them to be controlled. And then to also monitor those activities in terms of assigning tasks, making sure the work is actually getting done, and even collecting uh, telemetry automatically from sensors uh, so that can be incorporated into the system and you know flag situations that are kind of going off the rails before they can become uh, emergencies um, we and then you know finally if, if something does go wrong when you're producing products you have to have the ability to recall it so we manage all the aspects around recall so that uh, uh, consumers that have received the product can be quickly and uh, precisely identified and notified that there's problems if, uh, you know, God forbid something actually does happen. Essentially, it's just all around giving these, these establishments the tools that they need to effectively manage their food safety programs. One can't help but when hearing lab-grown of it alluding to or kind of reminding us of genetically modified. And I know when the GMO debate was really taking hold of consumers, we heard a lot of consumer statements about why genetically or about genetically modified products being labeled as not safe. So I'm curious, in your opinion, why do you think lab-grown meat is different and will most likely, when it comes to consumers, be subject to less scrutiny and public outcry? Well, firstly, um, I know that there's a sort of conception amongst segments of the consumer market that GMO is not safe, but I think that this is actually a misconception. In, in many cases, GMO's products are not only safe, but they may even be safer because they can be, first of all, engineered to remove certain harmful compounds that, that could otherwise uh, naturally occur. Um, 
they're much more efficient in terms of yields, so you're, you have less environmental impact because you get higher yields per acre. Um, because you can genetically engineer them to be resistant to pesticides, uh, you have to you use fewer pesticides, which results in fewer uh, pesticide residues, you know, ending up on your dinner plate. And, uh, and you need less fertilizer, which is uh, harmful environmentally. So the, the, the anti-GMO movement is essentially a fear-based movement. So you know, one can't actually apply kind of rational thought uh, directly to it uh, because it comes from you know, this, this emotional um, response, which comes from really two sources. You know, first of all, there's this notion that natural is good. And uh, in many cases, that, that's true. Natural is good. But in other cases, you know, there's situations like uh, cyanide and arsenic and cancer, all natural products. Uh, yet, you know, the, I wouldn't I think anybody would consider those to be necessarily good, particularly our food supply. Um, so the world, you know, is, is obviously dangerous, uh, and nature isn't necessarily safe or kind. Um, and I think Hollywood has really capitalized on this, which is one of the, the reasons why the GMO movement has really taken off, or anti-GMO movement, and that they've created this kind of notion that there's mad scientists who sort of irresponsibly experiment with different organisms and, you know, monsters result that spring forth and, you know, potentially harm our loved ones. So we're afraid of that, and, and so we push back on that. But the reality of the fact is that GMO is extremely tightly regulated, and the, you know, any advances in GMO is intensely scrutinized before they're ever approved for release. And we've also been eating GMO food already for decades because, uh, you know, all the, almost all the cornstarch, canola oil, granulated sugar that uh, you find in the supermarket today are all GMO-based products. And then there's, there's another aspect as well, which is a bit of a sort of a Western privilege that we're, we're uh, imposing on other parts of the world. Like in, in India, for example, they have a major problem with about 30% of their eggplant crop uh, lost each year due to caterpillar infestations. And there was a GMO variety that was developed that's resistant. And the purpose of developing it was to really stabilize the uh, food prices for millions of people that were suffering from food insecurity. And they just need this crop as one of their basic food sources. But uh, India's uh, banned this variety because of pressure specifically from uh, anti-GMO groups, which unfortunately you know, results in, in people starving. So um, could this sort of uh, uh, consumer wave uh, rise and, uh, and attack lab-grown meat as well? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think it, it will for sure pretty much. But uh, I think what's going to happen is if the cost can be brought down to the levels that the, uh, the producers of lab-grown meat are suggesting, then there's going to be a, a dramatic uh, advantage because it takes like 18 months to raise a head of cattle, for example, and it only takes two weeks to grow a lab a vat of lab-grown meat. So if the capital cost can really come down, it should be cheaper which is going to be obviously a big consumer advantage. But there's always going to be a niche, I think, for animal-grown meat. And I think it's going to be rebranded, I suspect, as natural meat. But it's going to be a bit of a sticky problem if you decide to sort of take it on and say it's uh, your uh, anti-lab-grown meat. Because first of all, you're, you're going to be going against the, uh, the animal welfare uh, and also anti-climate change uh, people which are generally the same people that are anti-GMO. 
So there's going to be a conflict, I think, between between uh, anti-lab-grown meat and, and those other two factors. I think that, so arguing essentially that animal-grown meat is better for animals or for the environment is going to be very, very difficult for them. And uh, there's also the ancillary issue that, in fact, there's going to be millions of animals that are never going to be born if, uh, if the world switches to animal products or to lab-grown uh, animal products. All right. For this last question, I'm going to ask for you to um, reach for your forecasting uh, crystal ball and tell, the aud- tell our audience, What's your prediction for lab-grown meat in the next year and then maybe in the next few years? Well, first of, first of all, in the next year, I don't really see anything happening before a continuation of sort of this steady stream of uh, media headlines uh, regarding lab-grown meat because they're just not ready for uh, wide uh, production yet. Uh, the costs are still too high. The technology is not yet fully mature. Um, and they're making significant uh, inroads, and I think that, uh, that that will continue. And I do expect to see some sort of mass market uh, introduction of lab-grown meats by probably sometime maybe late 2023, you know, 2024, 2025 is probably going to be more of the sweet uh, spot in terms of delivering, you know, substantial quantities of product to the consumer market. Could take a bit longer if uh, problems arise or there's regulatory hurdles that need to be uh, overcome. But uh, I think we're probably, you know, still three to five years out. Although in the end, you know, there's the potential that it could, it could even supplant animal-grown meat um, in the relatively, you know, nearer future within, say, a decade or so. And it might even be an imperative to do it because uh, our current processes for creating animal protein is definitely uh, too inefficient and too environmentally harmful. Well, with that, Steve, I want to thank you for being on today's episode of the Food for Thought podcast. everyone listening to the Food for Thought podcast today, thank you for tuning in. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about everywhere you can listen to a podcast. Be sure to tune in next time as we talk more about the stories behind the headlines of the food and beverage industry. Take care. Have a great day.